This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Artificial Intelligence Podcast with your host, Dr. Tony Huang. Today, I'm with Anupam Rastogi. Can you give us a brief background about yourself? Yeah, happy to. So I'm a general partner at Emergent Ventures. We are a seed stage venture firm focused on AI-powered SaaS and enterprise businesses across application layer and infrastructure layer. We are investors in about 40 different companies, which are spread across the length and breadth of the enterprise software space and bringing AI to a number of different enterprise verticals, as well as a lot of horizontal functions and the infrastructure layer. And in terms of my own background, I've been in the enterprise software space for over 20 years. I started off as an engineer, studied computer science, worked in engineering and product roles in both a larger company and a couple of startups, and then entered venture capital over a decade back. And then since then, I've been involved with a number of companies, over 40 different investments that I've been personally involved with, and have been fortunate to see a number of different journeys including a bunch of companies that have meaningful, consequential businesses, a couple of IPOs, large M&A exits, and everything, every other type of outcome that's possible. Those are some of the broad strokes. Yeah. So based on your prior investing career, what do you think are some like key lessons that you learned from bringing products to market? Yeah, there's lots of them. I think timing is very important. That is one thing I learned early in my career. Very Early in my career, in the late 90s, I was doing research on applying some AI algorithms to Bluetooth to make it lower power. And Bluetooth as a technology that we use in a lot of our, to connect our phones and a lot of devices, it ended up being a pretty significant, large technology. And low power Bluetooth is what enabled a lot of things. But my work there was at least 10 years too early. Bluetooth did not start to become mainstream till at least 2010, maybe later. So... I was over a decade early there, and uh, and similarly in my in the very early part of my career, I worked on a couple of other things on the frontier, which were five or ten years too early for the market. So that is one big learning: is that you really have to, to the extent you want to commercialize new technologies and take them to large scale, uh, you have to be at the right place at the right time. And there's ways to go about doing that, figuring out which market is ready, which technologies are ready. And that's what goes into a lot of our work as VCs as well, really figuring out we want to be a couple of years ahead, but we don't want to be 10 or 20 years ahead of something as seed investors. So I'd say that's one overarching lesson around market timing. Just a number of lessons around how do you really process and ingest customer feedback and feedback from the market and 
how often and how fast do you iterate? A lot of those lessons tend to be very specific to the type of product you're building. Uh, you can start at the top level of the tree, B2C versus B2B. And then within each, I'd say even within B2B, by different vertical, by the type of sales cycle, by the type of user, by the type of dynamic of whether the user is the customer and the person paying for it versus someone else is paying for it. A lot of things could determine how and how much feedback you should incorporate and when you should do that and how fast you should iterate on products. But yeah, happy to dive in more into any other specific areas. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious, you've been in the VC space for over a decade. How have you seen the startup ecosystem evolve, especially with the rise of AI and cloud technologies? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm coming up on over 12 years now in VC and also as in startups before. Market, of course, has gone through cycles. There was a period between 2001 and 2005, which was a very slow and tough market for startups. And then there's another similar one between 2008 and 2011. I'd say a few predominant changes in the overall venture market have been just the most obvious one is scale. The market today is at least 10x bigger over the last 10 to 15 years, if not more, in terms of the amount of capital that's going in, the number of companies that are getting funded, the number of different firms and different options that founders have. So it's a very vibrant, much wider uh, ecosystem now uh, than it used to be. And that's great for on entrepreneurs. That's great for innovation because that en enables capital to go into a lot of different kinds of sectors, different kinds of stages, different geographies, and different kinds of models. So that's one overarching change. Cloud and AI have really, I'd say I'll separate out the two. I'd say cloud and SaaS has been around for over 15 years now. And AWS was launched around 2006. But we really started to see some cloud-oriented companies around the later part of that decade, around you know, 2008, 2009. There were some before that as well, but we started to see a more meaningful number of them around that time. And I was an investor in a cloud offering company in 2010. And so that market has been evolving. I think it's a lesson, cloud adoption is a lesson in how large markets can, over a very long period of time, really build a vibrant uh, ecosystem and set of opportunities and how these opportunities are not just that, hey, this technology will just get done in one year and this is the window of opportunity. It's because cloud came about in 2006 and even today, the cloud penetration of enterprise workloads is less than 20%. So 80% is still running on uh, not public cloud, so either private cloud or on-premise infrastructure. And we're 15 years in. So I think cloud is a great lesson in how technologies, especially those focused on enterprise and that require more complex buy-in from a disparate set of stakeholders, many different considerations can take a long time and the bigger opportunities can take a while to unlock. And that's what we've seen in the cloud. There were great companies funded in 2008, 2009, some of which are now you know, 50 and $100 billion companies. But then even five, 10, 12 years after that, there were still great companies getting funded in the cloud space. Snowflake uh, started to raise most of its funding maybe after 2015 or so, at which point cloud is already nine or 10 years in. So if you were to apply similar lessons to AI, there's some lessons in there. What it says is that as investors or even just broadly as humans, we sometimes can get caught in the fact that, hey, this is this new technology and now's the time when everything will happen at the same time. But sometimes these are in many cases, these 
impacts are staggered over a period of time and over multiple waves. And you have to really figure out what the right play is and what the right time is. So similarly with AI, I'd say there have been many different waves of AI in general. I studied AI in the 90s in my undergrad and worked on some thesis areas around that. And at that time, it was already 30, 40 years in. But I think the current wave of machine learning, deep learning, somewhere around 2015 or 16, it started to really take off with some of the deep learning algorithms and cloud compute becoming cheaper, data being more widely available. But then at that time, for a brief period, it looked like, hey, everything in AI is going to be done very quickly. Then it went through a little bit of a hype cycle and both up and down of the hype. But then a lot of value got created with that over the six, seven years since then. A lot of companies applying machine learning, deep learning at scale and delivering a lot of value in the enterprise as well as consumer companies. Most large consumer products that we use are very heavy, heavily dependent on machine learning, deep learning, whether it's search or your social media feeds or the recommendations on e-commerce sites. A lot of those sites are driven by that and which has driven probably a lot of prof profitability and growth for those companies over the years. But then, of course, over the last year now, we've seen an incredible amount of momentum with language models. Language models also started to really come up around 2017, 2018, with the Transformers paper getting published in 2017, and then BARD and other tools getting launched in 2018. So you've seen when we have companies in our portfolio that we are investors in, which have been using some of these language models for a variety of use cases for the last five, six years. But over the last year, something more magical and dramatic has been happening with, let's say with larger models have really unlocked another level of intelligence, which I think puts us on a path to some really unprecedented value creation and changes in how business is done and how not just technology, but I'd say just across all walks of life, how things are done, how different functions within companies are organized, how we go about our lives. And so, yeah, we are, that's what we are currently investing behind and also seeing through our 3540 portfolio companies, which are active around this space. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Gotcha. Yeah. So with like modern AI, especially language models, they're creating these huge ripples in the business world. How do you see like language models impacting like the venture capital space? Is it causing a, a huge ripple in it where like such as increased efficiencies in operations or like being able to decrease the the duration, like the time it gets that, that it takes to do a deal? Like, how are you guys using generative AI in, in the VC space um, in, in that type of aspect? And also, how are you using it um, to vet out companies or invest in companies that are using it? So I'd say at the moment, the second aspect is a lot more pronounced in terms of us investing in companies which are leveraging generative AI across a variety of functions and industry verticals. In terms of us using generative AI in the VC industry, I'd say that I would classify it largely in its infancy at this point. And the VC industry and financial, some of us are 
have not been the quickest adopters of the technologies that we invest in ourselves. Of course, at a basic level, it's getting used for, of course, for generating various types of content, a lot of email that's being sent out for prospecting. I can tell that now some of the email I'm receiving is, looks very personalized and has probably been written by some smart AI. And over time, I think in our industry, we'll see a lot of support of processing information. And we are seeing that we do some of that and other firms do some of that as well in terms of really looking through a larger universe of companies and identifying the ones which are more likely to break out or have more signs that are promising than the broader pool based on prior patterns that have been seen. But in the end, I'd say we see in the foreseeable future, at least the next few years, is very much a human-driven business, very driven by specific judgment, especially at the seed stage. There isn't a lot of data on these companies. There isn't a lot of financials, revenues at the stage we invest. There aren't a lot of customers. There isn't a lot of metrics on usage where you could project from there. There is some, but there isn't a whole lot. So these tools are useful in helping sort through a large amount of information and surface uh, a smaller set. Similarly, I think it'll also get used more actively for bringing value to investee companies and companies that we are investors in, being able to bring to them more of the best practices on what we're seeing around metrics or various kind of other areas or help with recruiting or identifying candidates for them or other things. So I'm starting to see a lot of tools which do things like that, which we and other VCs are using. I'd say more broadly in terms of where we are investing, there's sky's the limit. I'd say over the last year as a firm, we have met about a thousand companies, which are most of which are applying generative AI to different functions. And every business function and vertical that you can think of, there are very smart teams right now going after that and really looking to remove friction and improve outcomes, improve decisions, improve efficiency, increase the pace. We're seeing a lot of companies, for instance, in, in product development and engineering. That's one area where now software is able to write more software and AI is able to create codes. Whether it's, if you think about the life of an engineer, most engineers enjoy a lot of the bigger picture, deeper work, thinking about algorithms, how to solve problems. But then really digging down on the nitty gritty and writing some similar code over and over or debugging it or API integrations or other kinds of integrations or writing documentation. So a lot of that work over time, generative AI can help a lot more with that, such that the percentage of time that the human spends on the higher value tasks goes up. So we're seeing that across every, whether it's marketers, salespeople, customer service, ability to support customers in a lot better, smarter manner at a lower cost, operations, finance, HR, recruiting, all of those functions. And then we're also seeing a lot of vertical specific tools for knowledge workers, tools for finance professionals, tools for, let's say, logistics industry, tools for manufacturing industry and others. In your opinion, like what industries do you see the most potential for Gen AI to create like a very disruptive impact? Like for me, I think it'd be like script writing, right? For Hollywood, like that, that would impact that industry so much that all of the, the, the script writers will have to go and become like prompt engineers later on. That's just my opinion. But like what, in your opinion, what do you think, like what industries do you think is the, has the most potential for disruption? I think most industries are going to see a massive change. And I think of it more along the lines of functions within those industries. And 
because I think there's going to be more commonalities along those dimensions. If you look at sales, marketing, finance, customer service, and other functions, there's more commonalities there. And differences by industry, yes, there will be. Some industries will take longer. But I'd say functions like marketing, sales, product development, and engineering, those three functions, I think, are we're already seeing early signs of that. We're seeing some incredible tools which are going to cut down the time that it takes someone to achieve what they're trying to achieve. And then customer service, I think finance and HR to some level. So I think we can stack by function where certain functions are going to just dramatically change. And we're seeing early signs of that. And then the industry, in terms of the industry, I'd say the tech industry itself is going to see a lot of change. And the tech function within industry is going to see a lot of change as software development itself looks very different. So it's going to be you know, possible to create a lot more software, a lot more complex software, a lot more quickly. So now imagine if companies which had a hard time, let's say hiring and building up large teams, can now with fewer people, a lot more software and everything that you interact with becomes a lot more software enabled. That'll change a lot of companies. And I think it's going to vary company by company within industries, the ones that adopt AI in a positive manner more quickly, they're going to grow their revenues faster and profits even faster. And overall, I'm happy to dive more into this, but I'll put one thought here, which I've been thinking about is, I think overall, I really think AI over the next 10 years is going to be very deflationary in a very positive sense. So for consumers and for end customers, uh, it's going to significantly decrease the cost of most things that they want to consume because it's going to cost a lot less to produce those things because labor, so much as much labor is not required in a lot of these things. And I think that's going to be generally very good for the end customers. Of course, there's other, at a macroeconomics level, deflation is not considered a good thing. But I think given the scenario where we are in society with a lot of inflation that has been over the last couple of years been a major issue, as well as if you look at overall population growth trends and fertility rates, uh, with those going down, I think AI is coming at a very good time where in five, 10 years where population growth may not be there at all at, at a global level. And in many countries, we may be looking at population going down or even population collapse. Um, AI is going to, to really pick up, pick that up and do a lot of that work and then make available a lot of those products and services at a much lower cost uh, to people. So I'd say, yeah, that I see that happening across industries pretty much. From your perspective as a venture capitalist, how has the rise of generative AI influenced the kind of startups that are seeking funding? It, are you noticing that a lot of startups now are just slapping the AI badge on their on the title in hopes of getting funding? Because I, I think if I read the news report correctly, it was like, if you said that your startup was using AI, I think you had like a 10 or 20% chance of getting more funding. I'm not sure if those stats are true or not, but you want to give us some background into that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think almost everything we're seeing right now has some level of AI and generative AI, at least in the enterprise space. And I'd say rightfully, it's, AI is just a tool. At some point soon, it's going to be become like that your product has AI. The equivalent, that'll be equivalent of saying that, hey, my product has software in it or my product has a UI on it or my software uses a database. So no one really talks about it, but everyone's product uses a database and has a UI and has some software in it. And I think AI is just one other technology, which if that's the, if that's what it takes to solve the problem you're solving, then yes, it should be used. 
And I think the, of course, it's our job to see through where it really makes the big difference and what really is, are the value drivers in the company that we're looking to partner with. And I'd say the great entrepreneurs are very good at identifying where is generative AI moving the needle. But then also, I think where the value is getting created in these startups, which are starting now, is still going to come down to a lot of the basic bread and butter of enterprise software. And that's really around what problem are you solving? Are you solving the right problem? Are you delivering great ROI? Are you fitting into the workflow of the customer? And then over time, are you building some efficiencies in your product using the da data that you are consuming? And is your product getting better uh, to use using that data and you know, customer inputs? So I'd say as generative AI becomes fairly democratized and available to everyone using the large models, which it has already become over the last year, or actually last few years, the value stays where it always has been in enterprise software. It's really in the workflow. It's really in the user experience. It's really in solving the right problem and using generative AI in the right way. Of course, there's a small subset of companies which are really blazing the trail on certain kinds of models and applying it to certain kinds of verticals and building their own, for example, language models or other image or video-oriented models for specific settings. And again, we dive deeper there with the companies and the founders. And again, great founders always have a very good sense of where they are creating value, which is different and over time, how that will accrue to their company and how that will give them some level of more so differentiation over time. But you're right, a lot of companies at the surface right now especially if they start in the last three months or six months, look very much and you have to really peel the layers and figure out where's the value getting created. And there, there is a subset there, which is just going to ride this wave to a lot of success. Yeah. So imagine if I was like a like head of my startup and I was making some Gen AI product, like how would I get above the noise so that I can become more appealing to a VC firm? Would I need to do... Would I need to build my own custom models? Do I need to, like a foundational foundational model? Do I need to build something that's like multimodal? What are some things that you would want to see in like a startup that uses Gen AI in order for it to stand out above the rest? So some yep. like characteristics and traits other than like the usual team, team having the right team, having the right advisors, et cetera, product market fit. Like what are some like actual traits about the company that that would help them? Yeah. Yeah. I think just building upon the previous point that I was mentioning, I think a lot of the value is getting created in the whole solution. I think in addition to the generative AI piece, it's really about, is this a problem that someone is willing to pay to solve and pay a meaningful amount, which will uh, lead to good unit economics? Does it fit well into the workflow of the user? And a lot of these generative AI oriented workflows are actually new workflows now with a different balance of human plus machine than previous workflows. So I said there's a lot of art and science that go that is going into that. And really the folks that get that right of how do you get the right human intervention? Because I'd say the, today's AI is not yet ready for a lot of autonomous uh, operation in complex use cases. So you can't just give the AI, hey, just send emails to all these people or write all this code and run it in production. You still have to have the, you have to really divide it into bite-sized pieces and have humans really looped in reviewing it and put it, put, giving it the right inputs. So really weaving that together in the right manner. And and then over time, like I was saying, uh, the we often look for this data modes or products that improve 
with data and and often it's a comment of the product combination of the product and the management team that they're able to take that data some of it is using ai you're just continuously self-improving but also at the company level companies and teams that are self-improving and taking feedback but i say and then more specifically uh, it varies a lot by specific type of company so if you're building a tool for developers to solve a certain friction point that they have how you create value there is going to be different from let's say if it's a tool for salespeople and and then in some cases i think you alluded to your own model the fine tuning so i'd say founders should do whatever it the, is the best whatever it takes for the for solving the problem that they are solving and for that customer set and in some cases prompt engineering is just fine you don't have to really write your own model if uh, a lot of the value may be created and uh, the other things behind the scene and getting scenes and getting the data together and in really fitting into the workflow and there may be a lot of machine learning deep learning going on and previous uh, step of that chain and then maybe you just do some prompt engineering and your solution really closes the loop your generative generative ips close the loop in some other cases it may mean you're fine-tuning models to a specific kind of environment for example let's say it's a customer support use case for a certain industry vertical and you already have a lot of data and transcripts on what's the right thing to say what's not the right thing to say so you may do some fine-tuning of models based on the data set that you have. And again, that gives you some level of modes and differentiation because then that data set grows and you fine tune the model further and your model gets smarter. And in some other cases, it might mean just writing a whole new model uh, if, the, if the existing models don't work well for that. And in some cases, that's what we are seeing is that uh, people are building, in fact, in some cases, smaller models, which are verticalized and specific to uh, certain use cases or industry verticals or yeah. other kinds of products. I totally agree with that. So like this, there's a new term called small language models, SLMs. Yeah. And that, exactly. I think that that became really popular during, I went to the previous data breaks conference and like the big talk was moving away from these large monolithic L, like LMs and going into industry specific, small language models that are running on like these smaller parameter, 7 billion, 1.3 billion, very small language models that are very specifically tuned to specific industries. I think that's going to be the big emergence in the upcoming year. Obviously, the continuation of building these large monolithic models by these large companies, Anthropic, OpenAI, that's still going to continue because that's more like general purpose. But we're going to see the, a lot of these like small language models starting to, pop up, starting to pop up, retail SLMs, marketing SLMs. There's going to be a lot of small language models that are just uh, appearing right now. Uh, unfortunately, based on my research, a lot of them are proprietary, so that they don't actually release um, like the data sets that they're using. So you can't really see what what's going on. Like you, you just basically have to like either buy them or <laughs> or, or use their API. But I, I do have another question. So given the vast potential of generative AI, in your opinion, what challenges do startups face when trying to commercialize? this type of technology, like in, in my opinion, I think it would be trying to get the actual data sets itself. If you're like starting off, like if you don't have a partner that will give you the actual data set and you have to go out and find the data set, going out to find like private data sets, it's non-existent unless you pay for it, which is going to be very expensive. Like for instance, Walmart's Illuminate data set is very expensive, but you can purchase it. But then there's also publicly available data 
given by the government, like data.gov, for instance, but typically those are not that good. So I think, in my opinion, I think that's like a big challenge for startups. Like what's, in your opinion, what do you think is a huge challenge for startups that are trying to commercialize like their gen AI product? Yeah, certainly. I think uh, data is uh, an issue. And what we've seen on that specific piece or challenge, companies that are able to do it well, is if they're solving a problem that no one else is solving right now, and if they have a compelling enough story, we often find that uh, good founders are able to find a few design partners who, you know, just on the promise and in a demo are willing to sign up for a pilot and be a design customer. And often that's how startups are solving their chicken and egg. So through those design partners, they start getting data and that's what they use to train the AI and then get smarter and then you get more customers and then the whole snowball gets rolling. I'd say other challenges or other things that folks think about very actively. One, of course, is uh, cost. Currently, it's pretty expensive. And also, there is a lot of different models. So building it in an abstract manner where you're making it agnostic to different language models, to the extent you're calling third-party models, you want to make it generic enough that you can plug and play other different models. And And then you optimize at the time you're calling based on complexity of the situation, cost and speed and uh, uptime and other things. So that's one thing a lot of folks are trying to solve is being able to access the right language model at the right price and do that in real time in some cases. Another one generally broadly evolving issue, of course, is around who owns the data, who owns the IP, what is the legal and other issues around that. I think that's another area where you know, even if the startup themselves may be clear on the data policy, what we are seeing is that generally on the enterprise side, and rightfully so, folks are fairly cautious on what data has been used to train these models. And let's say they use someone else's model, but that model was trained on data where there was deemed to be infringement later on. Then what happens in that case? Is the customer also liable for it? Or should they? how should they safeguard against that? So we're starting to see that question not just starting, we have been seeing that question come up rightfully. And it's more relevant in some domains, less in some others. And I'd say yeah, we touched upon the differentiation piece a bit. So that's one thing I always encourage founders to think through is even though you are starting out and everyone starts or good founders start by looking at, hey, here's a pain point. I know five people that have this pain point and I call 20 others so that same thing. And I find that, okay, there's a lot of people with this pain point. But then what's happening is that because a lot of these applications are enabled by this generative AI, which came up in the last or reach scale in the last year, uh, a lot of others are doing the same thing. A lot of other smart people are starting this exact same company. So really thinking one or two steps ahead about the kind of issues we were just talking about the last five, 10 minutes on differentiation, data modes, and really building that, how do you really break out? In, in that category and putting that thinking a little bit earlier on, I'd say that's something everyone's just working through right now because it's so early in the overall space and lots of companies in pretty much any specific space you pick. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm curious. So this upcoming election year is going to have a lot of deep fakes that are going to pop up. I just know it's going to happen. I think they, the Republicans released like a, like their first gen AI deep like attack ad. And so in 2024, I'm imagining like that's going to be very prevalent on both sides with that raises concerns about fake content generation. 
be it like deep fakes and media or even like fraudulent texts, like how, how would you navigate these ethical challenges when considering investing into these startups? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the bigger issues that comes out of generative AI is really verifying the authenticity and lineage of any piece of content. And I think that, of course, a huge challenge which needs to be addressed. And therein also lies an opportunity. And over time, if I had to speculate, I think we would probably see or would need to see some system where there's some level of verification that almost when you think back to the Napster days and music and those music just being freely copied everywhere and people were worried and then DRM was digital rights management was invented and some of that got solved, not entirely, but in at least in some good measure that it became possible to them and then streaming came up. So it got solved over a period of time, but there was a period of chaos and there is a risk of that. You're absolutely right. I think that's something I personally think about as well quite a lot is that I think increasingly images, videos, and certainly text content for sure, but images and videos look really very realistic now. And you can just really have anyone say anything. But I think consumers and people will get smart about it over time. And hopefully some of these DRM equivalent type things come up, which can indicate what is or verify for you very quickly, whether something is real or not. But there is yeah, likely to be, there's going to be some time before that gets into place and where everyone is aware of this problem. Cool. And I guess in your experience, what are some like key components for achieving like really early product market fit success? Like you, you probably went through a lot of companies and you've seen a lot of companies churn through your organization. Like what are, what's the thing that really allows a company that's building like these AI products to achieve early product market fix success, especially in such a, a growing crowded market that's that's about to pop up? Yeah, a very broad question. I'll take a stab at it, but that's what we spend. I spend a majority of my time with uh, the founders I work with, especially in the first, and after we invest, the first year or two are really about finding product market fit. And I think a few learnings have been that uh, the first iteration is almost never it. So what you when you start, what you think, is the product and the messaging and the persona in vast majority of the cases for even the best companies that ends up evolving. And a second piece which is related is that product market fit itself is a moving target. And even companies that think they have it, if they don't move in 12 months, 18 months, in some fairly short period of time, they, they would lose it if, unless they keep iterating on it. So putting those two together, I think PMF is really about rapid iteration and doing that in tandem very close uh, keeping a very close ear to the market and customers and not doing exactly what customers are saying but using your judgment and the market input of hey we said this and this is the product this is the persona and that happened and sometimes some other opportunity comes out something that's slightly adjacent or you figure out that the pitch needs to talk more about x versus y or you figure out that, hey, the persona is not the VP of this, but it's the director of that. And what I've seen is yeah, it's always about iteration and it's about how quickly can you iterate, but while balancing, not iterating away from what would lead to PMFs. I think it remains much more art than science. And I think it just, that's where I think really a lot of judgment comes in on really those iterations and what is sticking and then sticking to what's sticking and doubling down on it. 
before the pandemic, the hot place to really get your teeth into as a startup would be Silicon Valley. But like during the pandemic, I noticed that a lot of companies started moving away out of Silicon Valley into like neighboring towns. Like for instance, uh, there was like a big migration to like Austin, Texas. That's a big tech hub now. Have you seen that movement around in your local area? And then I guess like another question would be like, do you think that people are going to go back to these startup hotspots like Silicon Valley or like Boston for its medical startup scene or like New York for its financial scene? You think that that's, that's going to happen like later on after the COVID-19 is done? Or do you think that we're going to continuously see more and more people do exodus, exodus out of these like cities? Yeah, I'd say there's a couple of things which are simultaneously true in this regard. One is that overall tech is getting much more democratized. So there's more and more tech hubs, both within the country and globally, which are all emerging. And that number will keep going up, I think. And I think we will see more and more major hubs emerge. So just in the last five or 10 years, I think you mentioned Austin, I think New York, which was not as big of a tech hub, has really become a much more meaningful tech hub than it was five or 10 years back. And globally, Bangalore and a lot of other places have been really driving a lot of venture capital activity. That is absolutely true. And during the pandemic, of course, I think a lot of companies went all remote. Actually, almost everyone went all remote by necessity. What we are seeing is, if I had to venture a generalization, of course, all remote when it works really well. But in my experience, it maybe only works for a small percentage of the companies because it takes a very certain kind of discipline and you really have to be all remote. You have to have processes. You really have to commit to it. And often people fall into the trap of doing hybrid, which uh, can be neither here nor there. So if some people are remote and some are in some hubs, that gets very hard to manage. And that leads to gravity back to a multi-hub model where companies have maybe one or two or three or multiple areas where there are pockets of people. So they may have their tech and product team in one hub. They may have their sales in another one and marketing in another one, for instance. But it does get important for people to be in one location in many cases for them, especially in the early phases when the processes are not yet in place. There isn't a lot of training material. People have to iterate. We're talking about iteration. You are iterating really quickly. So that does take a lot of real-time communication and deeper involvement. And then with specifically with AI, we are also seeing, I'd say with Silicon Valley, San Francisco Bay Area has really has the depth of talent and energy right now which is probably there in other places as well. But I've definitely seen a lot more founders moving back or moving to the Bay Area over the last year, more than the last four or five years. So we are seeing some level of resurgence of the SF Bay Area, especially as it relates to AI. Because I think there's a lot of, and we've personally seen this, we have a lot of cross-geography companies that we are partners with. So we have a lot of companies, all of our companies are US market-facing. Most of them have a Bay Area presence. Typically CEO go-to-market team would be here. But their tech team, in most cases, is in a different geography, like India or Europe or other parts of US. And what we've seen is folks who are in a hub like the Bay Area, where there is a lot of energy, a lot of very smart people, they have a lot of competitors, they have a lot of collaborators, customers, there's that critical mass, a lot of people they can hire. They're often able to move fast and you talk to them week after week and you can see they are iterating faster because they're getting feedback from the market in real time by literally in every coffee shop that they're sitting or event that they're going to or people they're just 
the serendipity effect of running into people that, especially in a fast-moving time, in a fast-moving industry like AI, that has that impact. So I'd say if I had to summarize overall more hubs, but I'm a fan of the multi-hub model over, let's say, the pure remote model. The pure remote model does work for some, but I'd say the multi-hub model works for a lot more people. So in your opinion, what do you think is going to be like the, like things are about, things are, are going to be outplayed very quickly in this AI space? I'll give you an example. What I think that chatbots are going to be outplayed very quickly. Like I think in the next three to nine months, every company is going to have a chatbot on all of their websites. And that is like the most basic form of using generative AI. In, in your opinion, what do you think is is the a tool or a technique or a product that's going to be outplayed and just going to be ubiquitous like everywhere? Yeah, uh, I agree. I think chat interfaces for sure. And I'd say a lot of the basic content generation stuff, whether it's marketing copy or sales email or blogs, I think just a tsunami of spam content coming at us. <laughs> it's all of us are going to be hit by it. So that is happening in real time. And I think it will get... But I'm also hoping at the same time that I think doing it in a smarter way, that takes time. Like we were discussing earlier about cloud, I think there's more complex and sophisticated opportunities that emerge over time. So doing it in a more, writing content in a more deeper, personalized manner, more specialized, that may take time. But I'd say the noise hits first. And I'd say we're going to be saturated with noise on cold emails, on blogs, on a lot of this content, which is just being generated. But the quality hopefully will, the signal to noise ratio hopefully will improve or that'll take time. Yeah, I hope so. I, I know that Amazon start blocking these AI generated books. And it's funny because LMs take literature as training data. In the future, you could have this really nasty loop where mm -hmm. AI is producing these AI generated uh, books. And then you have another AI that's taking in those books as training data. And you have this really nasty crappy loop that that spits out nonsense that's like my biggest fear in the future i guess like looking forward how do you see the evolution of like generative ai like shaping the the startup ecosystem and say the next five years what do you think that is going to be really hot that's going to pop off there yeah i think more broadly basically just taking each business workflow how work is done in every business function and in every industry vertical there's going to be a solution for that. And I think that's going to take time to build and put into practice such that every company has adopted it. I'd say very similar to the cloud, it may take five, 10 years or much longer. Cloud has taken much longer, but it could take five, 10 years where every specific job title, not just let's say at a level of let's say sales or marketing, but if you take specific title within that for each of that persona, there's going to be a AI, which is going to make the job easier. And that's what we are investing actively behind. And that's what we have been investing for the last seven plus years at Emergent. But I think with generative AI, that just steps up another level where on that spectrum of human plus machine, now we move more, a bit more towards the plus machine part, yeah, but, but still human in the loop. So just rewriting those workflows, I think in a smarter manner, is going to take a lot of time. I think doing the, like we were discussing the content generation topic, I think doing it in a the slapstick manner is easy and fast, but really doing it in a manner where enterprises adopted, employees are happy with it, the worker is happy with it, the product is great for the customers, and that vast majority of companies have adopted it. I think we're looking at just 10 years for a lot of these 
specific workflows. So I think we're going to see a lot of, and then I think we're going to see a lot of compound opportunities come out. I think we're seeing right now the first layer of opportunities from generative AI. Uh, so for example, there may be a co-pilot for everything that is either already out in the market or in the next six months for every little function that you have, there's going to be a co-pilot. But now who's going to manage all those co-pilots? So now you need uh, some level of coordination between these co-pilots and they need to be personalized to you as well as maybe to the work that you're doing and your uh, corporation, the company. And again, that takes time. So I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities around that. And I think we'll see a lot of compound opportunities when the first level and then uh, opportunities in making all of these things a lot smarter and not just something that people try out for fun and then forget about it and say, that, oh, yeah, that is cool. But then it has to be really compelling for people to change their how they're going about their work day to day. So if I needed to get in touch with you, how would I do it? Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn, Twitter. And my email is pretty easy to figure out as well. It's my first name at emergent.vc. Cool. And then lastly, for like new entrepreneurs that are listening in, what piece of advice would you give them when they're trying to embark on their startup journey, as well as learning this like brand new technology, which is like generative AI? Do you have any like tips and tricks? Yeah, lots of them in a longer session. But if I had to pick one, I'd say start a company because you want to solve a specific problem. Uh, that you have, but not, and not only because there's a new technology like generative AI or blockchain three years back or some of the technology. What we've seen is generally the success rate of companies and founders is a lot higher when they are solving a problem that they just really identify with that they've deeply understood and they're in it for solving that problem at a large scale. So that would be my, if I had to pick one, that'd be one advice. Great. Thanks for listening in. And until next time, stay curious.